Hello, welcome back to the Doctors In Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse. Today's podcast kicks off 2023 and introduces our new special series, What Plants Crave from Technology. In this new series, I'm going to be interviewing equipment suppliers, manufacturers, and developers about the unique technological needs for growing crops indoors and in greenhouses. To help me launch this new series, I have invited my friend and colleague, Chris Higgins, president and co-founder of Hort Americas, to talk CEA tech, the needs, the challenges, and the evolution over the past 20 years, or however long we want to talk about. Many of you know or have seen Chris at industry events and conferences where he's often moderating a panel, sometimes of misfits, often with misfits, um, me included, navigating a wide range of topics around greenhouses and vertical farming, sustainability and CEA, market trends and business development, and the future of horticulture and the broader scope of agriculture and technology. As president and co-founder of Fort Americas, he distributes growing accessories and supplies to CEA growers. As owner and founder of Urban Ag News, he disseminates knowledge and know-how to the CEA community, one of the big reasons I love Chris. And as an advisor to both academic and industry research pursuits, he often provides the much-needed gut check on what growers are challenged with and what they really need from academia and research to be successful and profitable. I believe Chris has been a mentor to many, including myself. When I was contemplating the big leap to start Dr. Greenhouse a bit over six years ago, he provided sage advice that I still lean on today. Chris, I am so excited to finally have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for helping me launch this new series. Um, I know there's a lot of topics we would love to cover and often discuss at any of these random events that we find ourselves at. But today, we're, I'm going to try to keep us focused on technology. Thanks for having me, Nada. I really appreciate the warm welcome and uh, the <laughs> <kind of> words. <laughs> for sure. You, uh, you have earned it and deserve it. So let's just start by introducing yourself to folks listening other than what I just introduced. How did you get interested in CEA and horticulture? It was a very not direct path. <laughs> so um, when I went away to school, I really only had one thing in mind, and that was playing college basketball. And so at the time, my only real connection to horticulture and agriculture were that my grandparents and uncles were farmers and my dad was in the turf and ornamental chem business. And um, much like I think a lot of young people, the only thing I knew for sure at that time was that I didn't want anything to do with what they did. <laughs> so I my goal was to do something completely different. Again, like a lot of young people, my path in college was academically successful, but it, it involved a lot of things where I ultimately got a degree in liberal arts that focused on anthropology and sociology with the focus of going to law school. One thing led to another and that never happened. And I found myself right back where a lot of young people find themselves of needing a job, not really knowing anything, but knowing some people who could help me get a job. And that's where that first job was in commercial horticulture. It was focused on the floor culture side. And I spent the first handful of my career, uh, years in my career, visiting ornamental greenhouses, helping them with pest issues. I think fast forward about seven, eight years and a company called Grodan 
uh, was looking for a North American marketing manager. And I applied with a goal of, believe it or not, at that time, I had never traveled outside the United States. And I went on vacation a couple of months before getting the job offer to Italy. And then I found myself in the next year going back to Europe, I think 12 times. So it was like wow. this, I hadn't traveled much. And then all of a sudden I got the, the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in the Northern European horticulture industry, uh, really the Benelux, you know, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, focusing on food production and, and learning a lot from Grodan as they kind of trained me to come back to the United States and take over a company that they own called Agrodynamics and help them become profitable while also branding and providing strategy for the Grodan line in North America, which at the time was mostly veggies, right? Because at the time I was doing this, I think the only state that had a le legal cannabis pathway was California. Everything else was illegal. So most of my uh, work with Grodan at the time was vegetables, but I did a lot to set up the early strategy for how they were going to handle the uh, the cannabis industry. I didn't know about your path or potential path towards law. You would have been a good lawyer. I mean, you're a good moderator, you're a good speaker. Um, I could see like moderating, litigating, like, you know. <laughs> well, and the funny part was I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had an advisor who was like, you would make a great lawyer. And if you tell somebody you know, at that age that is just kind of trying to figure out how they're going to get income, that they would be a good lawyer. You're like, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> right, right. Well, you make good arguments all the time. So you would have been really successful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and I just, I, it's kind of funny because when I, one of my first places that I rented as a young person, I was renting like a garage apartment from an attorney and he said, don't do it. It's the worst really? decision of my life. And that individual talked me out of going back to law school. And he in the and what really hit home for me, I think he was 41 or 42, and he had a heart attack from too much stress. And he had a young family, and and he just sat me down one night at the kitchen table. We were, you know, just hanging out. And he said, you know, this was if you've got another opportunity, explore that. Law's law's not for everybody. And it was advice that I took to heart. And when I found the greenhouse industry, what I really liked, whether it's ornamentals or vegetables, I really I like food production better because I like to eat more than I like to garden. Let's just be honest. <laughs> so that I have a tendency to lean towards food crops. But what I liked about the greenhouse industry was I really liked the people. And mm -hmm. in the first decade of my career, I was really a, uh, I was on the road. I was visiting clients. So, you know, at least three weeks of the month, I was driving from a greenhouse to a greenhouse to a greenhouse, spending essentially my entire day out in the, you know, outside, helping solve problems, being part of, you know, being part of an industry that was changing and and growing. And um, the people were just really nice. So it was yeah. hard not to enjoy that. And I, there were a couple of times along the way where I thought about going to other industries. And when I would go interview in those other industries, there was just something different about the people that kind of kept drawing me back to horticulture. And I could have went agriculture as well, but the opportunities for me kind of were more commercial horticulture. So, I mean, you've been sort of entrenched in the grower's perspective for a long time. It, yeah. it explains a lot about your perspective in general on the industry. And, and you know, my little brother owns a uh, ornamental greenhouse in Florida. Um, my grandparents were farmers. I think I was very close to my grandfather growing up and I got his perspective of how he looked at 
the industry supporting him. Having watched my brother make business decisions as a greenhouse owner, mm. um, I think that's had big influence on me talking to him. We, we used to be business partners. Now we're not. Sometimes it's better to be family, not business partners. Sure. <laughs> or business or friends. And, and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I think when you get the opportunity to look at anything from the other side, I, I think if you're paying attention to that opportunity, I think it puts you in a better position. And being, you know, if you're in a sales role or if you're in a marketing role, I've always wondered how people can enter into that role, not knowing anything about what their customer does, mm. because how can you be effective, especially in a B2B situation, right? We're all in business to business environment, right? We're selling, even our, even our growers are selling their produce to retailers. They're not necessarily selling their produce to the consumer. Our, yeah. our growers are selling their produce to restaurants. Our cannabis growers are selling to dispensaries or flower growers are selling to garden centers. We really do live in more of a B2B world than what we want to realize. And when you're in a B2B world, you are in a situation where you're that what motivates someone to invest, buy, or make any sort of decision that impacts their business has a different package of emotions than what it would be if you were going you know, as a consumer to a store where you might just buy something because it sparked a feel-good emotion and you don't care about wasting the money. We have a tendency to be much more protective of our money when it's on the business side and we're constantly being told to look at the return on investment. I mean, you bring up many more thoughts and questions um, as our conversations typically do, but just like that idea of B2B and this sort of movement or or interest maybe of, you know, consumers wanting to know where their food comes from, wanting to know the farmer. I don't know if they actually want to know the farmer, but maybe they want to just feel good that their food is safe and grown, you know, in a way that, I don't know, they would be comfortable with that doesn't have pesticides that would be like in their garden, right? And we do have, I mean, business to consumer, right, which would be your farmers markets. And, and maybe yep. there are some greenhouse operators or indoor operators that have, right, like a retail store or something mm -hmm. yep. attached, but that is pretty rare. And, and the funny part about the whole trend, the food trend that we're going through right now, is we, we really, again, this is the part of the industry that I like to do is I like to try to break them down. And we look at the volume of product that's being delivered, which way, and trying to unpack what the consumers feel. You know, there's only a very small percentage of the shopping public that can afford to have those sorts of desires of where their food comes. Lots of the shopping public, they buy what they can afford, right? And, and that's why companies like Walmart are so strong. And then, you know, I was I was going back and forth with someone on LinkedIn yesterday and talking about this exact same thing where, yeah, I mean, I know local, I know what the consumer says they want out of our produce growers, but it, you know, we can't take that emotional reaction that they're having and apply it to everything because the same thing is true that when you look at impacting how the consumers eat, I think 60, 70% of the calories come from either carbs, protein, and something other than fresh produce. I'm drawing a blank on what that is. And then I think 60 to 70% of the consumer's diet is made up of processed food. And that number is increasing. Mm -hmm. So when someone tells me, yeah, well, the, the consumer wants this, they're not wrong. A small segment of the consumer likes this or wants these attributes. But the reality is, is that the big public is showing different trends, regardless of what they're saying to us, how they're spending their dollar is very different. 
Right. Um, I mean, that brings up the whole subject too of sort of calories versus nutrients in a way and sort of the, the bang for your buck that you can get from that, uh, the bang for your buck, but also what are the nutritional needs that, that we need? Obviously we know in the U S um, we have an obesity issue and diabetes and heart disease and all that kind of stuff. And it would be probably helpful if people ate more veggies um, and maybe those consumers recognize that it would be good to eat more vegetables, but can they afford it? Um, do they like it? Do they know how to prepare it? I mean, there are just, there's so many things wrapped around that. And it is, it is so convenient, especially now that we have two people working often, um, you know, making the money and then feeding the kids and time is limited. And so, you know, it, it takes more time to prepare veggies than to have a convenience food. And so, you know, at the end of the day, calories is what we need to sort of be energetic, <laughs> right? And like do things. But obviously, if we don't have the nutrients, our bodies are going to break down. Same thing goes with plants, right? I exactly. mean, they need the carbon exactly. dioxide, right, to grow and to build and to make their sugars and, and everything. But if you don't feed them fertilizer and nutrients, they're going to kind of suck. <laughs> and, and you know, that whole this whole topic, even though it kind of feels like we might have done of course we did veered off topic a little bit <laughs> but in reality kind of taking it back is this you know um as i've aged i you know i would say starting right around the age of 30 especially i started to really think more about how my body was aging having played sports and done some things that hurt my body pretty bad and caused some pretty sustained injuries let's say starting to think about okay well what's my life you know what's my activity level going to look like as I age and then starting to take, you know, consider what am I eating and how is that impacting the way I'm going to enjoy life as I get older really is what kind of brought me back, you know, um, as I've had a chance to decide what part of the controlled environment ag I wanted to focus in on, but really what brought me back to really enjoying focusing on the fresh produce side, right? T teaching myself more about what it takes to have a healthy balanced diet what it takes to maintain a weight when you're a young person and you're playing sports and you can consume whatever you want to and never mm -hmm. even consider gaining weight to someone who's almost 50 now and having to think about, well, I'm still exercising a lot, but it sure doesn't, doesn't I make know, a big it's difference not the that same. it used to, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so thinking about that is kind of what has, has continued to help me stay, stay passionate and focused on the fresh produce side. I don't get as caught up on the consumer side as the other part of my interest. It, it goes back to, I think, having family that are farmers, if you will, is what does this mean for the farmer? How, if we've, we've got these, these two paths that are running parallel, at what point in time do they, do they cross in which it's beneficial for the farmer, right? How can that farmer become someone who supplies a consistent, high-quality source of nutrients into the industry at a good price point. Um, I'm not one that thinks that we can charge whatever we want to based on the way we grow. I'm one that more looks at, okay, here's where the market is. How do we grow to fit the market? Yeah. And how do, how do we help our farm, our farmer clients scale up in a way where as they scale, the price that they can charge actually comes down, right? because yeah. they're moving more and more into the mass mass retailer, which means there's more and more price sensitive sensitivity as they move more towards the middle class uh, and the middle class shopping America. 
So I feel like this actually, we can use this as a segue to start talking about technology because a few thoughts have come to my mind as, as we've been talking, you know, around technology, around controlled environment, agriculture, and around feeding people, feeding consumers. First, let me, let me just step back for one second. How do you describe what controlled environment agriculture is? That's a good question. And I think my definition has been shaped much by some of the older people in our industry. Um, some of the people with years of experience in our industry, way more than me, people who've already retired and, and, and some of those people being from the University of Arizona where you went to school, right? Um, when, you, when I first met Gene and Merle back in the mid 2000s, Merle was spending a ton of time in Mexico. And a lot of the growers that he was advising in Mexico were using very low tech structures to control the environment to a certain level to provide them with a better uh, way of managing whatever thing it was that they were trying to manage. Mm. And so when I look at CEA, I kind of look at anything from a net house to a hoop house, all the way up to a growth chamber and a vertical farm, right? And anything in between, that's kind of how I look at it. And you might have heard me say this in the in a couple of the panels that I've been on recently. For me, if we're going to use controlled environment successfully, we look at the the geography in which we're putting a farm, our access to both natural and human resources, and then we choose technology that help us helps us manages the issues we have with those natural and human resources. And what do I mean by that? If I'm in an area that has ample amount of sunlight. And yet um, I'm dealing with, let's say, really cold nights. And that's all I'm really dealing with is lots of sunlight. Like I'm in the high desert. I'm probably not going to have a lit greenhouse. I'm probably not going to have these things. I'm going to build the greenhouse appropriately to the environment. Whereas if I go way, way north Canada and I'm growing leafy greens and that leafy green model fits an indoor farm fairly well, well, the sun is not very reliable six months of the year. So I may choose electric light 100% of the time because Canada also has fairly cheap energy rates. So looking at how those things stack up and then making decisions from that is why I like controlled environment agriculture. But my definition is really broad, right? Because it's just a tool. It's just a tool. And, and again, I don't think the consumer cares about CEA, much like my buddy who's a row crop farmer up in, in Kansas he doesn't make a press release when he purchases a new combine with the latest GPS system on it, even though he might have dropped a million bucks on the damn tractor, right? He doesn't make a press release. It is a tool that helps him farm better. And, and for me, CEA is the same thing. If we have a situation where we have to conserve water, if we have a situation where we have to manage cold, heat, humidity, whatever, pests, whatever it might be, then we should choose the tools within CEA to do this. And I think we're right now at a place in the in in the history of our industry in which we may have gotten confused by the type of investors are out there on why we're making those choices. Hmm. You you said a few things in there that I I wanted to touch on a little bit which is, you know, these different levels of technology, right? Like for a long time we were talking about low tech, medium tech, high tech greenhouse. And there's probably some gray areas or transitional areas in between what you would consider low tech, medium tech or medium tech, high tech. And now we have indoor farms, which 
probably also have their own version of low tech, medium tech, high tech. I haven't actually thought about it that hard, but I think we could probably come up with some examples of what what would fit within those categories. Is the the type or let's just say the level of technology, whether it's greenhouse and then shifting over into indoor, could you decide which level of technology based on the market that you're serving um, and the size of the market that you're serving. So you mentioned geography, you know, a lot in terms of, you know, climate and light, which of course is near and dear to my heart, but you also love to talk about market, you know, what is the market that you're supplying? So is a greenhouse more appropriate for maybe a larger scale regional or even national sort of distribution market where a vertical farm is maybe more localized? I mean, we talk about vertical farming being locally grown, right? Urban agriculture. Um, but then you have these really big facilities because you have to scale up in order, you know, to, I, I guess, be profitable. Um, so then all of a sudden you're not local. Right. Because you have to have a big market in order to pay for the large investment you needed for this high tech facility. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, the way I look at it is going to be different than the way the sales team is going to look at it from the farmer's perspective. Right. If they have a sales team or their broker. And the reason I say that is I'm looking at it from from a cost of goods standpoint. I would say that today, what we know about technology is that if it is a relatively low, and, and again, let's let's leave cannabis out of this conversation because yeah, I have yeah, to yes. mess things up a little bit with the, with the math. If it's relatively low light requiring crop with a, high, uh, with a high plant density and a quick production cycle, I think you can look at a farm without sunlight because what we're doing is we're utilizing the production space and created rapid turn so that every square meter of production space or every square foot of production space has a very high value. And that allows us to then hopefully get a high value in terms of the selling point. So a, 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 a classic example of one that would work in a vertical farm would be microgreens. Number one, it's a niche market. Number two, uh, it's got a fairly high sales price, right? Number three, it's relatively low light requirements very fast production cycles and extremely high planting densities. So when you put all those things together, you have a tendency to have a good opportunity to make a profit. Now, if you go the other end of the spectrum, it, it for me gets harder and harder to think about using super high tech because of the amount of energy that it goes into managing ultra high tech. And let's say you look at using a, a, another niche crop at the very uh, far end of the spectrum would be wasabi. Mm. If you look at wasabi, you know, it kind of throws things off because it's extremely high value, but fairly low planting density, extremely slow production cycle to get a good harvestable rhizome. You could be looking at a year or two, right? So then you start putting all of this energy on this crop. And yet, even though it's of high value, you're, the amount of yield you get per square foot or per square meter is not enough to cover that cost. Mm because you're either heating, cooling, or lighting that crop for such a long period of time, you're just adding too much energy to it. So then you have to start looking at, okay, the longer the production cycle, these, again, these are my opinions, the longer the production cycle, you have a tendency to start moving that into an area where you can rely on free photons or free heat, at least for a part of the year. And I think that's why you see, even though we, I know there are business plans out there to bring tomatoes into an indoor farm without sunlight, 
still the majority with tomatoes are going to be utilizing sunlight in regions of the world that have ample sunlight, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mexico. And it's going to be very, very difficult to compete with them. And so for me, that's how I look at it. I don't really look at the market per se. I look more at the region and what those natural resources are. What's the, you know, what, what is the 12 month weather pattern look like? But also how much energy is it going to cost me to manipulate that? And, and then there's this risk category too, right? So if I'm, if I'm going to start protecting it, I'm protecting it for a reason because I'm trying to de-risk my growing, you know, uh, my growing season. Am I trying to extend it? Am I trying to keep the rain off of it? Am I trying, you know, what is, what am I trying to do with this technology that allows me a better opportunity to be in the market for a longer period of time? And I think if you take all of those things together, it creates a very complicated and complex answer, but that's the reality of choosing these tools. Yeah. Um, I also think of risk in terms of your wasabi example is that it takes a year or two to, to develop that rhizome and you've put so much energy, you know, and resources into growing that crop. And if there's a failure, some sort of catastrophic failure, you know, yes, you protected it from the risks outside of the building. But if you have a catastrophic failure inside the building, you just, I mean, yeah, that's really well, high risk. Too. What was it 10 years ago when you and I worked on that tomato roadmap book together? Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I think we say in that book is that the reason at that time, and I think, I don't know, you might remember the years, but I know when I first started Hort Americas in 2010, there was a reason that we started taking smaller growers that came to us over to lettuce. And that reason was fairly simple. It was that in one year, we had 10 crop cycles using technology of that, uh, uh, you know, of that time, right? If it was a shorter crop, we could get 12 crop cycles. But what that meant more was we had a chance to make 10 mistakes in the mm. course of that year. And within 30 days, we had a chance to generate revenue again, yeah. right? Now, take the other, the biggest greenhouse crop, which is tomatoes. Tomatoes are fairly high risk because you put that young plant into the greenhouse. And then if you don't produce at a fairly high yield for 10 or 11 months, right? the chance of you making your money back is fairly low. And if you have a catastrophic failure at month six, you've lost everything, you're done. Mm. And, and so when we were helping to bring smaller growers into the market, there was, it, was, it was by design that we were choosing leafy greens, not because we thought that the market was that much better than tomatoes, but based on our skill sets of helping growers along the way, we were like, okay, we can teach them a much faster in most businesses. And I don't care if you're a farm or a restaurant or a wholesale supply company like Hort Americas, most businesses don't have enough cash raise as they're starting their businesses to last for five years without a profit. And in tomatoes, if you're not careful and you have a new grower, it is easy to go three to five years without turning a profit. Where lettuce, it's the opportunity to turn a profit or even break even when you have 10 chances to make a mistake in one year versus one, it, it's much more likely that you can find success. And, and, and gives those growers experience and helps build confidence that then if they want to expand, you know, build another greenhouse bay or convert a greenhouse bay into tomatoes or a higher risk crop, they have lettuce under their belt, right? Yeah. And something that's probably profitable while they're learning the new crop. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. What do you think about uh, different levels of technology in terms of who's going to actually be working in the greenhouse? <laughs> um, so are you talking about like AI and robotics? And I mean, we, you can go that far, but yeah, I mean, in it just in terms of, um, uh, being able to learn the technology, adopt the technology, you know, just that learning curve. Um, and I mean, we could talk about resources too, but I just think, you know, a low tech greenhouse, you know, even a, a net house, I mean, that's basically like gardening outside with some protection against some pests, right? And then you go, you know, into these higher tech greenhouses, there's more automation, there's sensors, there's equipment that you're managing you're not just managing the plant right so that requires a different skill set and then, yeah beyond to ai and 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 robotics um that that requires a different skill set i mean do we always have a grower regardless of what level of technology i think we always have a grower regardless of what level uh and i think the grower skill set as the technology goes up the grower skill set changes and I think we also have to keep in mind size of farm mm -hmm. because the size of farm is going to greatly dictate, number one, how much tech that grower can afford. Because, you know, you look at a farm and, it, and you're just producing widgets and each widget has a value, right? So if you're if you're producing 100 widgets and each widget's worth a dollar, right, but your cost of goods is 50 cents, means you got 50 cents left over at the end of the day. And you only have a hundred widgets, so a hundred times fifty cents, fifty bucks. Like, <laughs> like you know, we're starting to get into some very basic math if you just look at it in terms of widgets. And that's why I think so many growers get caught up in yield metrics. But the reality for me is that we will always have a grower. The larger the farm gets, a labor manager or an operational manager who has a lot of experience and understands growing while also understanding business becomes even more key because then you get in this operational excellence. The smaller farms, I think as a grower, it's dangerous for two reasons. Number one, as we talked about a finance standpoint, but number two is a lot of times when we're adding tech, we're actually taking away some of the buffer capacity of production. And what I mean by that is we have to be there every day, right? Like if we have an NFT system versus growing lettuce in the field with an NFT system. I don't know how it happens, but you can walk away from that greenhouse for 15 minutes and come back. And somehow your drip emitter is no longer inside the channel. <laughs> like, there was nobody in the greenhouse and something happened to cause that, that the, the tube to drop, you know, to come out of the channel. And so you have this constant awareness. You have to be constantly looking at your crop and paying attention because you haven't left yourself a lot of room for mistakes. Right. Mm -hmm. If that emitter's out of that channel for 20 minutes during the midday of the summer day, the crop's done. Right. Yeah, you're screwed. Whereas if you build yourself more buffer capacity, and if you if you think about like a low-tech pond, even over an NFT system, well, if the power goes out, nah, not that big a deal. The plant's sitting in the water. You just hope that you can keep it cool enough, you know, provide shade, turn off the lights, and you've got buffer capacity to withstand that problem take it all the way into a hoop house in the field. And now all of a sudden the earth is providing you that buffer capacity. And as long as you hit your irrigation, you may be able to walk away for three or four days and your, mm. your yields and you've got this, it, it kind of crosses with your yield curve, right? So the more, the, the more you can push the system, the higher yields are. 
And the less you can push the system, the lower your yields are. But you also have this this area of need to produce more and more as you get higher and higher because your capex per square foot is higher. So it's finding for your farm and your climate, it's your farm, your crop and your climate. It's finding that balance for where you want to use tech to build what you think is a, is a successful farm. So you mentioned that growing lettuce, that a pond would be low tech. And well, NF- it could be, could be. Okay. Okay. So, but I just want to parse that out a little bit because, you know, what is technology, right? I mean, just in the broader sense and, and, and how are we using it? So if, if I just think about your example, you know, which is, you know, purely hydroponics, right? We're growing um, these roots in water. And if a pond is sort of low, we'll just call it low tech. We'll just create these categories. And NFT is higher tech. I'm not sure. If, is there a higher tech than that? Aquaponics? <laughs> I guess aeroponics, <laughs> aeroponics would, be, would be super high tech, right? And, so, so what, and tell me, what distinguishes those from being low, medium, or high tech in your mind? For, for me personally, it's pretty simple. It's moving parts. Yes, perfect. Okay, so for me, that's where, and when I say ponds are low tech, I can, I've got two really big growers in the back of my head yelling at me. That's not low tech. <laughs> And I actually do agree with them. But when I say ponds, I'm referring to the Kratky method, right? And when we look at the Kratky method of growing hydroponically, we're in a water reservoir and we're not really having, we don't have any pumps involved. We don't have any of those sorts of things involved. So we have very few moving parts where when we move all the way to aeroponics, on the other hand, now we have very little buffer capacity around the root zone, right? We've got our roots and we got air. And we're relying on a bunch of brass nozzles and a pump, a, a, a high pressure pump to create this mist around the root system. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong there, but it's also very tech, high tech because theoretically you can do stuff to the plant that it can't do when you're, when you're not pushing it as hard, right? So for me, high tech, there's two things that come into play, which is, you know, how much tech is there, how many moving parts and pieces and things can, you know, that we have to either electrify or turn on or manage in some sort of way. And versus low tech is going to be, you know, think about the sales guy. When the sales guy walk in, how much does he have to sell you? <laughs> like if a guy's growing lettuce and if a, a guy or a gal is growing lettuce in a high tunnel, once they bought their bows and their plastic, you know, to cover the, the, the greenhouse, what is a salesman left to sell them? A little bit of fertilizer? Aeroponics system. What's what's there for the salesman to sell? A whole bunch of things. Right. PVC, pumps, reservoirs, cleaning agents, dot, 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 you know, it, it keeps going on. So for me, that's where that tech plays in. It's how much are you using and how, if something fails, um, how catastrophic is it? Um, I, I'm, when I say that, I look from a very negative standpoint, uh, but it, it's not really meant to be negative. It's just trying to figure out how we define it. And I also feel like when I'm listening to presentations around the world, we've fallen into this high-tech thing being designed really as a marketing term that the Dutch did a very good job of coining, right? And if you talk to much of the horticulture world, high-tech is glass Venlo greenhouse, mm. right? And I think that Wageningen even has papers that state that. Really? I know I've, I know I've heard professors from Wageningen use the term in association with Venlo, right? And then you have like, especially in the Netherlands, it'll be Venlo's high tech, 
double layer polys, mid tech, high tunnels, low tech, right? That's that's the line. Okay. Um, but then we think about what all goes into that. And it, it's it's a very different thing. And as as we have more ag tech companies try to farm, the definition of tech gets morphed and changed to suit their 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 positions in the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, the other thing that I hear is that low tech is sort of low maintenance, <laughs> maybe low risk. Um, um, lower risk from a cost standpoint, definitely, right? Sure. Well, low risk from things breaking down. Yeah. Yeah. Also, right? A low maintenance risk, um, a low crop loss risk, um, where high tech means potentially high risk, high risk of losing the money that you invested, um, of having, you know, it's a really high maintenance system because there's all the moving parts, right? So you're also going to need more labor, more skilled labor um, and engineers on site maybe to to handle it. What is the benefit then of high tech? Control. Okay. Right? It's the opposite of that. So we're when we say low risk from a low tech standpoint, what we're talking about is low financial risk in terms of investment into prepping an acre for production, right? But on the other side is depending again if we're ta- what part of the world we're talking about. On the low tech side, we give ourselves very little control over Mother Nature. Right. So if on the low tech side, if we're just in a hoop house and we get a hard freeze, what in that hard freeze lasts for a few days, that's where our risk is at. Right. Mm-hmm. Our risk is unpredictable on the low tech side because it's very hard to predict pestilence, drought, freeze, storm. You know what I mean? It's very hard to predict those things. So we're choosing tech to give ourselves more control over the things that are hard to predict. In some cases, they're easy to predict, right? If you're really far north, you know you're going to have a hard winter. You just don't know when it's going to start, but you've got the tech to help you battle that hard winter, especially if you want to grow and sell something locally 365 days. But, you know, when you drive out to Salinas, California, what you see is relatively low to mid tech, right? Or no tech. Yeah, yeah. And I argue no tech in the field. I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm Thank only you. talking about it in terms from CEA because there's a yeah. hell of a lot of tech in the field. It's just not as easy to visualize. Yeah. Right. Because uh, there are, as we just said, there are a lot of tech and tractors. <laughs> like there's a right, lot of tech right. and irrigation. Well, and let's also be honest, there's a lot of CEA tech post harvest from the yeah. field as well that people don't realize. Yep. So, so, so for me, te- tech is not a bad word. Tech, it, it, it's just, I think the, the location and the crops should determine tech. Tech shouldn't determine the location and crops. That's just the way I look at it. And, and it can be, yeah. you know, if we look at Spain, um, southern tip of Spain and Almeria, where there is a whole lot of greenhouses, they have chosen tech that works for them, right? And it works for their culture because culture also plays into tech. Yes. Yep. And I think the one thing that if if there was only one takeaway that a listener heard from me today is that. The reality is that all levels of tech can be successful. They can all be profitable. It just depends on the business you're building. Same way for me when I'm, you know, with my business, I have to make a decision on how much am I going to invest in my ERP system? How much am I going to invest in my, in my um, reporting capabilities? How much am I going to invest in inventory? How much, how many backup resources am I going to have to load trucks, right? Like I've got to, I've got to make investments decisions all throughout that decision-making chain. And each one of those are utilizing a certain level of technology. 
And I've got to decide which levels of a tech are important for me to turn a profit. We've been looking into ERP software ourselves. So <laughs> speaking right, right to my have heart fun. there. Uh, <laughs> tell fun. me about it. Uh, we can talk about that afterwards. For, for our listeners who don't know about, about Almeria, Spain, um, Google, go to Google Maps or go to your, your favorite map app and just zoom zoom out or zoom in. I'm not sure which is probably a satellite view at this point. It's just, it's plastic. It's it's really quite amazing. And I was really lucky in 2006 to, to go there. I had the pleasure of going to um, Almeria for an ISHS uh, meeting. And what was really cool about that conference is that it was specifically around climate control of greenhouses. And I happen to be studying, you know, evaporative cooling and ventilation for greenhouses at the U of A. But it was amazing to be surrounded by scientists and engineers and academics all focused on the same topic. Um, so there are others of me out there, believe it or not. They're just not mostly in the U.S. <laughs> but, and you know, Almeria for me was a, a huge learning curve when I was working for Grodan and mm. watching what products worked in Almeria versus what products worked in the Netherlands and then watching the decision-making processes that were happening for imports into, into the United States. Mm. And, you know, Almeria is very successful. Right. Yeah. There's, you can't take that away from them. They have a huge impact on consumers, tomato choices throughout Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to say that they are low tech is to not give them their dues. Right. They yeah. are right. They are right tech. And I think that's the term I would like to hear us use mm -hmm. more is right tech. Like, are we choosing the right tech for our businesses and our given scenario? And I think, you know, I think where we're at as an industry is okay because we have a lot of new entries in our industry. And so when we have new entries, they're looking for people to give them tech that will work because they want to protect their businesses. As we mature as a North American or specifically a U.S. industry, because Canada's pretty mature and Mexico's pretty mature, as we mature as a U.S. controlled environment industry, hopefully we'll get to the point where we're making good decisions for ourselves rather than relying on tech companies to tell us what to do. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, on that on that note, how have you seen? I mean, you've been in this industry. Well, when did you start working for Grodan? Uh, two thousand January two thousand four. Okay, so in in these almost twenty years, how have you seen the technology evolve? Has it all just evolved towards high technology? Are you also seeing some developments and evolutions within? I guess what we would call what we have now defined as potentially low or medium tech. You know, what you see, I think what's easiest to see is everything's mm. pushing towards high tech. Right. And what's easiest to see is the influence that Dutch horticulture has had on high tech in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Now, the reality is when you look at food production and you don't get caught up in the tools people are using to to grow food. And let's say you look at the berry market in California, you see traditional berry growers adopting parts of high tech to fit their needs in their climate, right? So they may say, okay, we're, we don't have methyl bromide anymore. So what are we going to do about managing disease in the soil? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to come out of the soil. <clears throat> but we're not going to invest in a glass structure or we're not going to move into a building because 
of reasons X, Y, and Z. And some of those are cultural and some of those are legal, but you, you're not going to move them all the way to a high-tech facility, even though if you look at their irrigation system, minus the fact that uh, uh, many of them cannot be closed looped at this point in time, they're utilizing a Priva system, right? A high-tech mm. climate control system. They're using the irrigation part of that system. They're irrigating on a steel gutter, which we would consider high-tech if it was inside a glass greenhouse. And instead of hanging from the structure, it's on top of a fence post, right? They're <laughs> irrigating from that and they're able to collect and manage the drain and they're using a grow bag. So they've chosen that part as the right path forward for their climate, right? Not all of them, right? It's still very early in that movement. But what I'm saying is I, I think that we are seeing some right tech from the bigger players in ag where when what most of us are exposed to on a daily basis are marketing articles that benefit from having investor capital that helps get them written about, right? Like think about most of the articles you and I have seen over the last five or seven years of our career. You know, they usually start with company X raised X amount of money, right? That That's usually, and then once that article has been written, we get to watch that company either succeed or fail, fail in, in, in real time almost, right? And so from that standpoint, I think that's had a bigger influence on what I see tech doing in the industry, even though I don't necessarily see it as a reality because I do look at things back to the beginning of the conversation. I'm looking at accessible market and how many acres of production of what crop do those production methods affect? Mm. And still, you know, the overwhelming amount of produce we have in the market today is not using high-tech production as the way we defined it earlier in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, over these past 18 years, I mean, you and, you and I met, I think when I was still doing my PhD at the U of A, yeah. um, you'd come around and you were working with Paola at one yeah. point. I think I hired a lot of people from U of A. <laughs> I think you probably did. Um, I'm still waiting to hire my first U of A grad. <laughs> I keep asking them to send me some people. Uh, but I'm curious, like, what have you seen sort of come and go? Like, what do you wish stuck around? Like, what did you think was was going to make it, but just didn't have teeth? Well, that's a good question. Because I, on at the end of the day, I don't think that much has changed irrigating. But in the reality, the, the, we're still using a lot of the same seed types that we were using back then, right? Like, we're still we're still growing a lot of the same plants. We've come up with novel ways of irrigating and managing the climate, but we really haven't ask you this question this way. You get to travel a lot. I know you visited a greenhouse in around 2010 that was growing hydroponic tomatoes. If you were untrained, not, not your eye because you know what to look for, but if you walked through a greenhouse in 2010 that was growing tomatoes and you walk in a greenhouse in 2023 that's growing tomatoes, what would you say has changed? Good question. And what I see as changing is we use more light than we used to because we have the ability to install higher light intensities, right? We okay. use more energy than we used to because we're yeah. pushing higher and higher yields. Um, there have been big changes in lettuce, right? We've gotten to the point where we use fewer people per acre to grow in a greenhouse than what we did back then because we've been able to automate. We talked about NFTs a bit ago. We've been able to automate how those NFT channels move. So we no longer have to move them as much, which has allowed us to expand the size of the operations because we've decreased the amount of labor that we're using per acre. 
but we're still irrigating in the same way. We're just figuring out a way to move them. Right. Yeah. So the things that I, there's not a lot of things that I thought, oh, this is going to stay, or I wish it would stay. Hmm. The thing that I hope we don't lose is more of the, more of the enthusiasm for the industry. When we have a lot of the failures that have been announced recently, and there's probably going to be more failures announced in the future, which shouldn't be surprising because whenever of all new businesses start 25% fail out the bat, no matter what industry yeah. you're in, right? Another, you know, and that's going to fail within the first couple of years. And within the first five years, I think it's like 40% of all businesses fail. So the fact that we have failures, that's not what concerns me. But what has been most interesting for me to watch is where the money has come from. And I think maybe that would be my answer to your question. I think the one thing I miss is farmers making the investment decisions, not bankers and lawyers. And I did not think in 2015 that the investment decisions would not be made by farmers. Yeah. And so that probably would be the one thing that I couldn't have predicted and I would have never guessed to happen. Um, but, you know, I, we both have friends who've done very well in the space and the ones that do well, and I'm using the term loosely, right? They keep the farmer at the table. Yeah. Right. The ones who take the farmer away from the table, um, those are the ones that seem to struggle or the ones that never invited the farmer to the table to start with. Yeah. Those are the ones that seem to struggle. And I think when we look, so this, this podcast is going to come out in early 2023. If you and I go back and listen to this podcast in 2025, I think what we will have seen is a shift away from technology for technology's sake to operational excellence. And I think you will see the companies that are doing well focused on farming operations, decreasing people per acre, depending on the size of the farm. You know what I mean? Decreasing yeah. the amount of people you're using to farm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean going to robotics or AI. That just means they're getting to a point where their labor is trained and they know what to do and they're working at a certain speed. And 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 that's always been part of farming and something we've gotten away from over the last couple of years, but it will come back as investors are pressured to get a profit, to turn a profit on their new investments. And there's going to be some that stay with it. And those that stay with it will focus on operational excellence. Okay, so a few things. One, to answer your question, uh, the tomato greenhouse that I may have visited in 2010, how it has changed to today is uh, it's now a cannabis greenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> Tune in next week to hear the rest of our interview with Chris Higgins. Thank you for growing with us.